1955, under the fuzzy hum of their television sets warming up, children and their parents settled in for a rare treat. Man and the Moon was one of three informational episodes for the television program Disneyland. The master of magic himself had commissioned them, none other than Walt Disney. As the theme music faded into the background, the children saw a man standing in front of the camera with ease. He spoke frankly, using a pointer to explain the parts of the rocket prototype next to him. His German accent was thick enough to be noticeable, but didn't detract from the aura of wonder surrounding the topic at hand. Outer space. Few watching knew that the man, introduced as Chief of Guided Missile Development at the United States Redstone Arsenal, also had a few other titles. Namely, Werner von Braun had once worked as a high-ranking rocket scientist under the Nazi regime before and during World War II. So how did the next decade find an ex-SS member, a man who had created the first ballistic missile for Hitler, in front of millions of Americans via their television sets? Why, he was one of the men who promised to help take the U.S. into outer space. This is The Dark Side Of, a ParCast original. A show where we will delve into the seedy underbelly of pop culture icons and historical events. We aim to expose the ugly truth behind cultural moments and public figures we hold most dear, proving that there is always more to the story than meets the eye. I'm your host, Richard. And I'm Kate. This season, we're covering the space race. While the quest to put a man on the moon and explore the great beyond has always been a trophy on the shelves of U.S. history, we're digging just a little deeper into what really happened to get there. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. You can find all episodes of The Dark Side Of and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream The Dark Side Of for free on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type The Dark Side Of in the search bar. Last week, we got a sense of what exactly the space race was and how it was cut from the paranoia of communism spreading during the Cold War. This week, we're covering Operation Paperclip, the covert U.S. project born from World War II that saw over a thousand former Nazi scientists and engineers brought to the United States. The reason? They were coming to help further develop American rocket technology. These rockets, initially seen as a nuclear safeguard against communism, would eventually be the technology used to put a man on the moon. The timeline on which Hitler's most skilled Nazi scientists, from biochemists to physics wizards, came to serve as intelligence advisors to the United States is fraught with issues. It all centers around the Allied theory of denazification, part of the larger plan to demilitarize Germany after World War II. By denazifying suspected war criminals through trials in Germany's civilian courts, the Allies thought two objectives could be achieved. One, 
those who had committed war atrocities would be punished accordingly. Two, those who were deemed not guilty of war crimes would then be free to move on with their lives. And if that meant aiding the American military, well, that would be an incredibly fortuitous benefit at the end of a harrowing era. Still, a pervasive fear remained that anyone who had once identified with the Nazi party couldn't be totally trusted. As scientists Henry Sack and Hans Bethe asked, do we want science at any price? The answer, ultimately, was yes. At the end of the war in Europe, Allied forces began combing through German towns with the strategy of denazification in mind. Those identified as suspected criminals were held for interrogation. Additionally, the Allies set about mining what was left of Germany's resources, including its scientists and engineers. Anyone with potential access to classified information was a prize. After all, it was no secret that Hitler's Nazi party spared no expense for weapons, including mechanical and chemical research. Evidence confirmed just as much. Additional groups, like CIOS, the U.S. Combined Intelligence Objectives Subcommittee, trailed behind the Allied troops, scouring for any war documents that hadn't been destroyed. In the wake of SS orders to burn any damning evidence, it's a near miracle that documents like the Osenberg list were found. Granted, it was found soggy, clinging to the inside of a toilet, but on its pieces were the names of every scientist who had been employed under the Third Reich. This was like finding a golden ticket, but it ultimately left the U.S. military with a choice. Should it utilize some of these scientists for its own benefit? After all, they suddenly had unfettered access to Germany's best and brightest. And more, the military was wary of what might happen if these individuals were simply left to reacclimate to post-war life on their own. Where would they go? What were they capable of doing? One nagging fear was that they would instead be courted by the Russians, who were also clearing through surrender Germany. If the Soviets had the scientists, there was no telling of what might happen. Gears turning, the U.S. military crafted a dramatic plan. Bring the Nazi scientists and engineers to the United States to work on classified research projects. The official purpose, as told by author Annie Jacobson, who meticulously chronicled this era in her book Operation Paperclip, was that these scientists would continue their weapons-related work for the U.S. government, developing rockets, chemical and biological weapons, aviation and space medicine for enhancing military pilot and astronaut performance. When the goal was told through this angle, it seemed incredibly legitimate. As if to say, why let a mecca of valuable information go to waste? Well, there was one glaring reason. Namely, this scheme was akin to sleeping with the enemy, albeit a defeated one. Many of these scientists were members of the ruthless Nazi party, which the U.S. had just spent six years fighting to eradicate. On top of that, the sheer logistics of bringing the German Nazi researchers onto American soil were incredibly complicated. Each agency had its own procedures for commissioned work from expats. 
The U.S. Department of Justice would require background checks. Meanwhile, the Department of Labor had its own system for dealing with alien workers. And finally, lest the project actually make good on its promise and produce research, the Department of Commerce would need to regulate any patent rights. They didn't want any opportunities for the Germans to leave the U.S. at the end of their contracts and later try to claim exclusive rights to what they developed. Logistically, it was a kitchen full of cooks, all being asked to sign off on creating a strange cocktail. They had no idea if it would even be worth such a risk. Still, some sort of decision had to be made regarding what was to become of Hitler's former scientists and engineers. So while the argument for bringing them to the U.S. was, quote, justified by perceived threats, the military wasted no time in also presenting it as a golden goose. It was a chance to further science, American science no less. Wouldn't it ultimately be a disservice to the U.S. if we didn't? In the summer of 1945, World War II hadn't yet ended in the Pacific, and anything to hasten that was likely welcomed with open arms. Therefore, a classified memo was drafted by the U.S. Joint Chiefs of Staff in July of 1945. It was appropriately titled, Exploitation of German Specialists in Science and Technology. It outlined the tentative plan. German scientists would be brought over for the purpose of increasing the United States' war-making capacity. The most important part of which was the creation of ballistic missiles. The V-2 rocket was arguably the most damaging creation that came from Nazi Germany shortly before it crumbled. The U.S. military anticipated that learning the secrets of the V-2 would possibly end the war with Japan and help prepare for any future wars. The memo also underscored that, quote, no known or alleged war criminals should be brought into the U.S. However, just because this stipulation was spelled out in black and white didn't mean it would be abided by. The program was intended to last about a year. Most of the initial contracts stated a six-month term. By no means was Paperclip an offer of indefinite employment with the U.S. military. The initial list included 115 rocket scientists. Naturally, bringing over these Germans would require some collaboration with other Allied powers if they wished to avoid stepping on toes. And so, the U.S. alerted the British with a very general overview of the program. Off this, the British asked to first employ a handful of these scientists in their own brief rocket testing initiative, dubbed Operation Backfire. The Americans agreed. Under careful British supervision, the German scientists reconstructed and fired V-2 rockets at a test field on Germany's northern coast, proving, if nothing else, that they were the real deal. In the fall of 1945, all but one of the Germans were soon released from British custody to the U.S. Walter Dornberger was held indefinitely. It wasn't so much his intellect as it was his suspected war crimes that kept him on loan to England until further notice. Dornberger aside, in September of 1945, the first group of scientists was secretly flown over from Europe by U.S. military transport. 
They were then temporarily housed in Fort Strong, an island fortress tucked away in the depths of the Boston Harbor. The quarters were terribly outdated, and so by the end of the month, six scientists from the first group were dispersed from Fort Strong to Wright Field in Dayton, Ohio. Amongst them was a motor researcher, an aerodynamicist, and a rocket fuel specialist. And they weren't doing this work pro bono. According to researcher Annie Jacobson, the salary of each German scientist at Wright Field shook out to an average of $12,480 per year, plus a $6 per diem, about $200,000 today. In comparison, using statistics from the U.S. Department of Labor, the median salary for a Ph.D. holding American scientist in 1948 was approximately $8,800. Clearly, the Germans were out earning their American counterparts. Whether that was an insurance policy to entice them to perform at their peak and share their most elusive secrets remains to be seen. But keeping the Germans loyal was only part of the difficulty. When word got out that the military was shipping former Nazis into the U.S., it would be a public relations nightmare. Coming up, Hitler's chief rocket scientist, Werner von Braun, lands on American soil. Now, back to the story. In the fall of 1945, after much internal debate within the U.S. military, Operation Overcast, the secret project's temporary nickname, began. Former Nazi scientists were given temporary contracts in the U.S., once their classified work was finished, they were to be transported back to Germany. Though a memo said no alleged war criminals were to be considered for employment, this seemed impossible to avoid. Granted, nearly all of the scientists had once been members of Hitler's political party. But Colonel Donald Putt, who was heading up the secret operation at Wright Field, saw this as little cause for concern. In fact, he was baffled at why anyone would have bitterness towards these professionals. According to Putt, all they wanted was an opportunity to work. Putt was a strong advocate for the former Nazi scientists. After all, they would make his operation shine if they were as learned as everyone claimed. But Putt could only do so much. If he pressed too hard for more amenities, even in the spirit of helping their research, he was met by crickets. As author Annie Jacobson put it, in Washington, the general feeling was that Operation Overcast was temporary and that the Germans should be happy to have jobs. Around this time, Operation Overcast was renamed Operation Paperclip, after the little clips attached to the files of the scientists' applications. Meanwhile, in the fall of 1945, Hitler's former chief rocket scientist, Werner von Braun, was headed not to Ohio, but to Fort Bliss, Texas, where the U.S. Army's ballistic missile operation was anchored. His transfer had been approved months before in June, but knowing it would likely cause a ruckus, the War Department delayed announcing it until October. The department apparently felt pressed to give some acknowledgement to the project. According to Jacobson, this was so as to avoid possible resentment on the part of the American public. And public backlash is specifically why the release glossed over mentioning von Braun by name. 
Instead, it announced, certain outstanding German scientists and technicians are being brought to this country to ensure that we take full advantage of those significant developments which are deemed vital to our national security. No mention of their former Nazi affiliations. Von Braun himself was quite the odd duck. Most who encountered him, even briefly, describe him as supremely gregarious. Allegedly, on the train ride to Fort Bliss, he engaged in a spirited conversation with a gentleman riding in his car. When asked about his profession, Von Braun easily strung together a story of falsities. He claimed he was a businessman in the steel industry, and from Switzerland, of course. When his fellow traveler turned out to be well-informed about the Swiss steel industry, Von Braun was unflappable. He continued to shoot the breeze until the other man reached his stop. Before exiting, the gentleman thanked Von Braun for the Swiss's contribution to the Allies. Little did the man know that he had just thanked the man who had served as the chief of missile research in the German army let alone that Von Braun had also been an established member of the SS and the Nazi party. Despite his troubling past, Von Braun would grow his resume to reflect surprisingly American accolades. He's known to this date for his work on the Saturn V rocket, which launched America's Apollo 11 spaceflight, putting the first man on the moon. But such engineering was only made possible by his time working with the V-2 rockets during World War II, the very missiles notorious for pummeling America's dear friend, Britain. The V-2 rocket, as ordered by Adolf Hitler, was shorthand for Vengeance Weapon 2. Naturally, someone who had been one of the architects behind such weapons of mass destruction was of great interest to the U.S. military. Hence, von Braun's journey to Fort Bliss. And as he began his role within the U.S.'s missile research arsenal, it seemed the project was gaining steam. However, less than a year later, Operation Paperclip hit a major snag. In August of 1946, the first batch of German temporary contracts was due to expire. And some within the State Department weren't enthusiastic to keep these men in the country, even for research purposes. Eager to make them stay, Under Secretary of State Dean Acheson told President Truman that he needed to make a decision on paperclip or else, quote, the German scientists may be lost to us. Truman had a lot to consider. That summer, Russia was beginning to pull the strings of their Iron Curtain, and the president's advisors told him that the Soviets were disreputable the two countries were far past any possibility of detente. An earlier Joint Intelligence Committee report from 1945 indicated the Russians were well on their way to developing new nuclear weapons, in addition to biological and chemical warfare agents. With this in mind, Truman was pressed for whether or not he'd renew paperclip. To send the scientists back was the original plan and would certainly lessen the moral pressure on the president. But to lose them could mean they'd find greener pastures, perhaps even helping the Russians with their own rocket development. In the end, the administration's paranoia won. Truman not only signed off on extending paperclip, but he added a slew of addendums to the program, 
Most notably, he grew the list of potential German scientists the U.S. could feasibly recruit. In the end, it ballooned to over 1,000 names. As for the ones already operating on limited contracts, well, those would be extended for another year, with a potential clause to extend up to five years. Lengthier stays, though, indicated these scientists and their families would likely now request American visas. If granted, they'd become lawful residents, able to stay in the U.S. indefinitely. This development was certainly the opposite of the original paperclip memo, which outlined that the Germans would be returned to Europe following their contracts. The once short-term program was growing long indeed. Just a few months later, by the fall of 1946, there were 233 former Nazi scientists operating in the U.S. under paperclip contracts and a stunning 140 of these were at right field. Though it appears none were thrilled about being watched carefully by the American higher-ups, many of them were content to be working with the military. Salaried research work was better than trying to rebuild a career in Germany's shaky post-war economy. As such, the American public was privy to a sanitized version of what was occurring. According to Jacobson, in mid-1946, the New York Times reported for the first time that there were Nazi scientists living in America under a secret military program. Another splashy expose by Newsweek soon confirmed that the Germans who were initially invited on six-month contracts were now hoping to impress their military supervisors and apply for citizenship. In light of all the press, the military underscored that they were simply taking in these Germans who were in danger of being snatched up by the evil Russians. Therefore, they were simply fulfilling their duty of protecting America. But one of the Germans was about to become a stark example of Operation Paperclip's ill-facilitated vetting process. Georg Rickhai was listed as a tunnel engineer when he was brought to the United States. This was logical for what Paperclip needed, Granted, his official title in Germany was General Manager of Production of All V and Rocket Weapons. However, the less emphasized part of this role, as explained by Annie Jacobson, was that, as General Manager of the sprawling subterranean enterprise, Rikai was in charge of renting slaves from the SS. Meaning, he supervised concentration camp prisoners who were forced to work on the rocket development programs at the Nordhausen V2 labs. And he'd previously alleged that he'd helped construct Führer Bunker, the catacomb-like bunker where Hitler lived his final days. Yet the U.S. didn't seem phased by this. So in spite of his tainted resume, Rick High slipped in. After being brought to Wright Field in Ohio in mid-1946, he was tasked with organizing a trove of V-2 documents recovered from the lab in Nordhausen. This task clearly wasn't rocket science, so on the side, Rickai and a pal ran a bootlegging venture, hawking cigarettes and booze to the hilltop where the engineers' living quarters sat. Their escalating debauchery, though, irked one fellow German colleague enough to eventually file a complaint. Doing his diligence to investigate, Colonel Donald Putt learned far more about Rikhai than he bargained for. The whistleblower told him that Rikhai had called for a mass hanging of slave workers at Nordhausen years before, a strident war crime. 
The accusation was damning, and it privately made its way around Washington. In May 1947, the War Crimes Branch issued a warrant for Rikai's arrest. His paperclip contract was terminated, and he was later brought to trial in Germany, although he was ultimately acquitted. Though the intricate details of situations like this were kept out of the public eye, there was enough reporting on paperclip to put the scientific community on high alert. Like all researchers, they loved a good pattern, and by early 1947, they had tapped into one that was particularly unsettling. It appeared that some of these German scientists were being courted for long-term positions at American universities. Having a close relationship with the military, which had the power to fund research at satellite labs, certainly seemed to help the German scientists get a foot in the door. Allegedly, a group of researchers at a Syracuse University lab later found out that their colleague, Dr. Heinz Fischer, an infrared technology scientist, had been sent to them to do work for the U.S. Army. That would be all well and good in their eyes if he hadn't been a confirmed former Nazi party member. In light of the present disturbing facts, the Federation of American Scientists, or FAS, feared that Paperclip's scope was expanding without proper guardrails. In March of 1946, there were 175 German scientists in the U.S. under some contractual guise of the project. By February of 1947, there were 344. That same month, the FAS convened to draft a letter to President Truman. They urged him to end the project, but Truman wasn't convinced. All in all, the FAS's requests were dodged and downplayed. Even Albert Einstein himself appealed to the president to pull the plug on paperclip. He didn't. The War Department did buckle down that winter, but in the opposite sense. No more releasing sensitive info. So the public was shut out of learning just how many new scientists were being courted. Meanwhile, paperclip continued to expand. Nonetheless, it was hardly a well-oiled machine. Logistically, the Joint Intelligence Objectives Agency, or JIOA, had only so much power, and that power did not include expediting hundreds of visas. In the spring of 1948, Paperclip was expecting to send about 500 German scientists to the U.S., and none of them had visas. It's unclear whether the scientists were working without visas or stuck in a holding pattern. Either way, it left the U.S. military operating in a very risky area. It appeared that America was hoarding all the German scientists it could simply because it was possible. Before, the military had used its power to dodge the long and arduous visa process by saying it was a temporary program. But Paperclip's timeline had expanded. If they were staying on longer contracts, the German scientists weren't temporary military custodians anymore. They were immigrants. They had to adhere to the same visa standards as anyone else. And it was hard to convince the rest of the government to prioritize expedited visas for former Nazis. So military intelligence chief Stephen Chamberlain needed to evoke a different sense of urgency. Communism. The Red Scare was already taking root in America. Many military leaders believed it was only a matter of time before Russia started trying to spread communism to the West. 
In light of this, getting the German scientists American visas wasn't just a distant matter of national security. It was a direct insurance policy against communism, preventing the scientists from falling into Soviet hands. It was an opportune angle, considering that right around this time, the Joint Chiefs of Staff delivered a chilling report about the USSR. The Soviets were replenishing their military stockpile. It was estimated that by 1952, Russia's weapons arsenal could be fully restocked. This report also detailed that in dividing up Germany, the USSR had cherry-picked not only a slew of German scientists of their own, but also entire research institutes. Purportedly, the Russians had reassembled two physics labs, complete with libraries and their researchers. For the U.S., as Chief Chamberlain told it, repatriating the German scientists wasn't just about the old paperclip guidelines of restitution in the form of knowledge. Now it was a question of whether or not the United States would trust these men to help build a hearty, rocket-based arsenal of weaponry to safeguard it from the Red Menace. Subtext? More manpower, less communism. In early summer of 1947, Chamberlain turned to J. Edgar Hoover himself, hoping the FBI director could turn up the pressure on the State Department. Up next... Hoover works his magic, but will it be enough to get the German scientists' visas approved? Now, back to the story. In the late 1940s, the U.S. military's covert Operation Paperclip had been running for a few years. If things stayed on track, an estimated 500 German researchers would arrive in the States in 1948 without visas. As such, in mid-1947, U.S. military intelligence chief Stephen Chamberlain turned to FBI director J. Edgar Hoover for help. He needed visas for the scientists expedited. Hoover's clout worked. Three months later, the approved documents began to flow. But this led to another rigmarole about how the German scientists were supposed to enter the country under desirable means. It was a convoluted process. After arriving in the U.S., the scientists would be discharged from military custody and instructed to leave the country by way of Mexico or Canada. Then they were to return through border crossing stations and present paperwork from the State Department and the Joint Chiefs of Staff to obtain their visas. Clearly, the controversial nature of the project incited the belief that technicalities, no matter how ridiculous, were to be upheld. In the end, these visa measures had fortuitous timing, given an international cataclysm was about to erupt. Just a month later, the Berlin blockade chilled ties between the U.S. and Soviet Russia. On June 24, 1948, rail and road access to Berlin's American zone were cut courtesy of the Russians. On that day, the few niceties remaining between the U.S. and USSR instantly dissolved. It also nearly solidified the public paranoia that communists were plotting against the U.S. The Berlin blockade was just the beginning. In the early summer of 1950, communist North Korea invaded South Korea, launching the Korean War. To American eyes, the communists were all but ready to take over Western Europe. 
There was more reason than ever for the U.S. to grab as many German scientists as they could before the Soviets got there first. One commander at Wright Field wrote to Colonel Putt, calling for a mass recruitment for paperclip. Bring even more scientists from Germany to America at once. And he got it. The project was soon aptly renamed Accelerated Paperclip. Dr. Carl Nordstrom, who chaired a new unit called the Scientific Research Division, was tasked with making sure the recruitment happened. Nordstrom was paired with the JIOA to evacuate, quote, especially dangerous top-level scientists out of Germany in a modified denial program that needed to be kept away from the Soviets at all costs. Code for deny the Russians access to these scientists. And more importantly, don't mention to the American public that more former Nazis would soon be making homes in the heartland. This was the most strident escalation for the project yet, for two reasons. One, scientists once deemed too dangerous were now eligible for the program. Two, the Joint Chiefs opened the federal purse and gave them $1 million to get the scientists to the U.S., an amount equal to almost $11 million today. The military was in for a deflating surprise then when many of these coveted German scientists had absolutely no interest in being evacuated. They were, according to Jacobson, likely too old, too rich, or too busy to be bothered. But there were three that could be bothered. Dr. Walter Schreiber, who was rejected from paperclip just two years before, Dr. Kurt Blume, Hitler's former biological weapons expert, and Dr. Otto Ambrose. All three were Class I offenders, the most serious denouncement from the civilian tribunals that occurred after the war. Ambrose had been convicted of mass murder during the Nuremberg trials and was still in prison in Germany. In February 1951, the U.S. High Commissioner for Germany, John McCloy, commuted Ambrose's sentence. He was freed from prison. This was met with great public uproar. Ambrose's release was public knowledge. And even Eleanor Roosevelt remarked in one newspaper, why are we freeing so many Nazis? Well, one statement in the visa applications for Schreiber and Bluma just about answered the former First Lady's question, indicating the most important criteria of the day. It said, Based on available records, subjects have not been in the past and are not at the present time members of the Communist Party. Not Nazi Party, Communist Party. The former adjective, once regarded as an affront to democratic ideals and ethics around the world, had been moved way down on the list of concerns. Even former Nazis were preferable to communists. Luckily, freedom of the press was keen to remind the public of such. The Boston Globe certainly wasn't going to welcome Dr. Walter Schreiber with open arms. On December 8, 1951, it ran a headline that said, Ex-Nazi in high post with U.S. Air Force. Public backlash sparked like a match to dry grass, and the months that followed saw the FBI and the Pentagon get involved in the dispute. Defensive, the Air Force insisted that the decision to offer Schreiber a paperclip contract was nothing short of essential to its needs. This appeased few, 
and eventually, in May of 1952, Schreiber was relocated to Buenos Aires, Argentina. The hope was that the scandal would die down, and he wouldn't make much of a fuss. As such, no Senate hearing or federal investigation ever followed the incident. Earlier in 1952, the project was once again in hot water, this time for violating NATO regulations in regard to its recruiting policies. As the 1950s puttered along, it appeared that too many of its coveted German scientists, now lawful citizens of the U.S., were moving on to other ventures. Take Werner von Braun. The charming rocket expert was becoming a prominent figure in the nation's space education. He graced TV screens through Disney television shows, telling excited Americans that the nation was just years or months away from exploring space. When von Braun's team was transferred to NASA, where he served as director from 1960 through 1970, he insisted his rocket research continue. Though the first Mercury-Redstone rocket was hardly successful, arguably it didn't leave its own launch pad, this technology later segued to the Saturn V rocket that launched Apollo 11, the pinnacle of American space innovation. Another example was V-weapons developer Walter Dornberger, the former Nazi who was once held by the British for his suspected war crimes. By 1950, Dornberger had left military custody for a plush position at Bell Aircraft Corporation in the U.S., where he would eventually be employed as the vice president and chief scientist of rocket development. Such projects were the forerunners to the U.S.'s future space-based weapons. However, not everyone fared so well. By the late 1950s, information came forward that Walter Schreiber, now living in Argentina, had begun brokering heavy weaponry from his former Third Reich contacts around the same time he began negotiating a paperclip contract. Similarly, Lieutenant Colonel Henry Whalen, who served as the deputy director of the JIOA in 1959, was later discovered to be a Soviet spy. During his time at the JIOA, he was able to share thousands of Operation Paperclip files with the Soviets. In 1962, the U.S. Department of Defense tasked the Pentagon with wrangling whatever threads were still trailing off from Operation Paperclip. As the U.S.'s rocket development solidified into more concrete and organized hands, namely NASA, Paperclip appeared to have run its course. But had it accomplished its objectives? Well, it depends on who you ask. Looking at what came of Werner von Braun, the answer may be yes. Without von Braun and many of his German colleagues, the timeline by which the U.S. got to space could have been vastly different, changing the history of American aerodynamics by potentially drastic proportions. Which begs a few more questions. Would American scientists have reached the same level of space innovation had the Germans not been brought in to help? Or, since many American scientists did later work alongside these former Nazi scientists at NASA and beyond, is it possible to credit the Germans alone with developing the rocket technology? Collaborative research means that everyone brings fuel to the fire. Thus, parsing out who brought what to the space table and when they did so is a murky business, especially granted the chasm of what information still remains classified and what was purposely glossed over. 
For example, Jet Propulsion Labs co-founder Frank Molina's contributions to rocket development have lived in the shadow of von Braun. Lecturer Fraser McDonald said, Many of Molina's technical contributions have largely gone unnoticed. From hypergolic liquid propellants to the theory of long-duration solid propellants. Though these pieces are different from what von Braun contributed, they were still integral. Politics, of course, could be to blame. Molina was a suspected communist. The FBI even investigated him in order to clarify that he had no motives to be acting as a Soviet agent. At the time, that was the enemy America was worried about. The Nazis, as far as the government was concerned, had already been defeated. So the debate remains about what moral obligations paperclip should have or shouldn't have catered to. On the one hand, there is no denying that the U.S. government blatantly pushed away evidence that these former Nazis had not only witnessed, but often directly participated in war crimes. On the other hand, a different faction of space professionals feel there would have been no future in space without them. According to NASA's Jewish engineer Daniel Golden, quote, not to have the Germans brought over would have been a crime. You could get dogmatic about it, but the Cold War could have ended the world. In other words, they were a sort of necessary evil. And this sentiment was echoed in a 2020 feature by the LA Times. It said that post-World War II was an era when moral judgments took a back seat to a deeply held commitment to the future of space travel and support of national goals. The country was so fearful of the red menace jeopardizing that goal that it would rather champion someone like Werner von Braun. Despite his past as Hitler's chief rocket scientist. Draw your own conclusions about the value of Operation Paperclip, but that's a decision best made once you know more about the whole picture. Next week, we'll be back to talk about space ethics, safety, morality, and all. You can find more episodes of The Dark Side Of for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. Just open the app and type The Dark Side Of in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time. The Dark Side Of was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Kenny Hobbs with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, Travis Clark, and Joel Stein. This episode of The Dark Side Of was written by Mackenzie Moore with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher and stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rossner. <laughs>